Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for each person that's here. We ask that you just bless and guide us in what you would have us to learn from these verses that we look to tonight and that your spirit will lead in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 1. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be you clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said unto him, See you tell no man, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. So we're going to stop there on this, this particular miracle. And uh, we're going to look at it first off. Jesus had been up in the mountain praying. The people found him after the, after the sermon on the mount. And he came down and a multitude followed him. And this is something we're going to see over and over, a multitude following Jesus. Now, most of them were not following him for spiritual advice. They were following him for healings and whatever other miracles and the feedings. We, we have two that are listed in the scriptures, and I have a feeling there were probably more than what was listed. People were always following him, looking for something. And you know, the, the world has not changed any in this day. Many times people are going to church or seeking God for something. They're not looking to be saved and, and turn their life over to God. They're looking for God. What, what can you give me? And unfortunately, a lot of people who claim to be Christians and even many Christians are the same way. God, I, I'm all for you. Come into my heart, save me so I can go to heaven. And when I need you, I'll talk to you. And that's a sad way to be because he wants us to be de devoted to him in an intimate lifestyle. Not just going to him when we need something, not just offering to give him something, you know, God, I'll give you this, but I expect it to be returned to me. You know, and it's amazing, he does usually return what we give to him, but it's not necessarily a promise and it's not a guarantee. He says, do you serve me? Do you love me? What are you willing to sacrifice to God? And this is something that is very important for us to understand. God asks us to give all of ourselves to him now, the exchange is something that is so amazing. He, he says, sacrifice yourself to him, but then he gives us everything back in return just for our service and our, and our voluntary devotion. And in Romans, it says, you know, it is our reasonable service to be a living sacrifice. And he says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. We're to be transformed to be like him. How do we do that? We get into the word of God. Plain and simple. Christianity is such a simple thing to live if we just do it the way God says to. And we get into his word, we start reading his word, we let his, let his mind change, his word change our, our thinking and to be like him, and let him crucify our flesh and he pours out of us. And yet we so often try to complicate it. God, I got to do all these things. What do I got to do to be... <laughs> To, to serve you? What do I got to do to get you to bless me? What do I got to do? And the answer is quit doing and die. Just quit doing and die. Let him be the one that works in us. It's amazing because I've talked to a couple of people in this last couple of days who talk about how convoluted Christianity is and I'm going, well, what makes you think so? And then they'll give me all these rules and, and, and living standards that they've, that they've heard. And I'm going, that's not what Christianity is about. It's about giving yourself wholly to God. 
and letting Jesus Christ come into your heart and change who you are. And yet, the church has purposely, I guess, sometimes convoluted it. Some people accidentally. But most churches have this attitude that if you give people, teach people grace, that people are going to go out and abuse it. And that's a sad thought. Are there people who are going to abuse grace? Absolutely. If you preach grace, many people are going to abuse it. Will those who are truly devoted to God abuse it? Not usually, because they're going to want to love him and, and see his grace for what it is, because grace cost God a lot. It, is not, it isn't something that's cheap. And if we understand what it cost, we're going to treat it as a special thing that it is. And here, this leper comes up and worships Jesus. Now, we were going to set up the stage, in case you don't remember, a leper could not come in amongst the people. So this man was taking his life on his hands, just coming in around the multitude, close enough to talk to Jesus. Because they were at 100, yard, 100 yards away, supposed to yell, unclean, unclean, and stay away from everybody. Because leprosy was extremely contagious. Now, we know that it's bacterial nowadays, but it wasn't known then, and it's extremely contagious. It destroys the feeling in your, in your body, and that is what actually destroys the body. It destroys feelings. So that you could burn your hand, crush your hand, cut your hand. You would never know that you had injured your body because you didn't feel it. It destroyed the feelings in your body. And then you would get the cuts. They would get infected. You would get the injury. It would be infected. And then you'd lose the, the usually digits first and then the rest of your body to gangrene, but it was be, you, the whole problem was because you didn't know that you had injured yourself. You could cut yourself very deep and never know that you cut yourself. You could grab a hot pan and not know that it's hot. And you'd end up burning yourself with second, third degree burns and end up losing, your, losing that part of your body because it would get infected. But this is the man coming and it says he worshiped Jesus. And he says, Lord, you can make me clean. Now, this is something that's very interesting in this statement because leprosy was something you did not get healed of back in that day. In our day, we can treat it with heavy doses of antibiotics. I think it's, I think it's three to six months you have to go on heavy doses of antibiotics to get rid of leprosy. So we can get rid of leprosy in our, in our day, but in their day, it was a death sentence. And it was a death sentence in multiple ways. You were going to die physically a very horrible death. And you were isolated. No matter where you were, no matter what culture you were in, if you were a leper, you were isolated from the civilization because you were that contagious. Uh, we hear Naaman. If you remember, Naaman was in the Assyrian army. And he had leprosy, but he kept it hidden by his armor. And he's the one that went to Elijah to get healed and Elijah sent him to get to go wash himself seven times in the Jordan River and he goes well I'm not you know our, our river back in uh, Assyria is better than this dirty river I'm not going to do this and he got talked into do it and ended up being cleaned but very few people ever got cleaned of leprosy and you we see what Jesus did here Jesus reached out his hand and touched him now we kind of read over this, and we don't think very much about this statement. Jesus just reached out, touched him, and said, be healed. When Jesus touched him, according to all the laws of their time and the, and the 
and the laws in the Pentateuch, Jesus would be unclean and would not be able to go amongst people after that. This was a big deal when he reached out. You could probably, when he touched the leper, we know the scribes and Pharisees were always around, and you could probably hear the gasps that they would have had. <gasps> you did what? You touched a leper? It would have been something that, you know, we read it and it's like, okay, no big deal. He touched, touched a leper. But in their day, this was a death sentence he had done to himself. And yet, when he touched him, the leper was healed. And all of a sudden, everything changed. Everything changed at that point on. And Jesus says, See that you tell no man, but go and show your, go your way, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Now, we're going to take a quick look at what this gift entailed, because most of the people in this room weren't here when we did Leviticus, and those who were here might not remember the gifts <laughs> that the leper had to give when they were healed. Is it possible that's why Jesus said to him not to tell anyone that I, that I touched you? No. At this point, he's not, he's not revealing himself as God and everything. He told a lot of people at that time, don't, don't, don't tell. Yeah, did a miracle. Yeah, don't tell him. He's got. That's the best way to spread it. Yeah. Don't tell anyone. That's not what he was trying to do, but because he also told the demons to be silent, he, he was not revealing himself for who, and it had nothing to do with him having touching the leper. No. No. No, he, was, he wasn't worried about what they thought on those things. So we're going to turn to Leviticus 14. That could be more ammo for them to put them to death. Well, they were watching him anyway. They didn't need that, so. They didn't need to. They didn't need to. They were always watching him. Leviticus 14, starting at verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought unto the priest, and the priest shall go forth out of the camp, and the priest shall look, and behold, if the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper, then shall the priest command him to, to take him that is to be cleansed, two birds alive and clean, a cedar wood and a scarlet hyssop, and the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water, and as for the living bird, he shall take it, and the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop, and dip them in the living bird, the, the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water, and he shall sprinkle upon him that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the living bird loose into the open field. And he that is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, and shave off all his hair, and wash himself in water, that he may be clean, and after that he shall come into the camp, and shall tarry abroad out of his tent seven days. And it shall be on the seventh day that he shall shave off all of his hair off his head and his beard and his eyebrows and even all the hair that he has shaved off and shall wash his clothes and, and also he shall wash his flesh in the water and he shall be clean. And on the eighth day he shall take two lambs without blemish, one ewe lamb of the first year without blemish and three tenths deals of fine flour for a meat offering mingled with oil and one log of oil. And the priest shall make him clean clean shall present the man that is to be made clean and whose offering and, and who those things before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and the priest shall take 
one he lamb and offer him for the trespass offering and the log of oil and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord. And he shall slay the lamb in the place where they shall kill the sin offering and the burnt offering and the holy place as the sin offering of the priest. So is the trespass offering. It is most holy. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering and the priest shall put it upon the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed upon the thumb of his right hand and upon his great toe of his right foot. And the priest shall take some of the log of the oil and pour it in the palm of his left hand. And the priest shall dip the right finger in the oil that is in his left hand and sprinkle the oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. And the rest of the oil that is in his hand shall the priest put on the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed upon the thumb of the right hand and upon the great toe of his right foot upon the blood of the trespass offering. And the remnant of the oil that is in the priest's hand shall be poured upon the head of him that is to be cleansed and the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord. So we're going to stop there because I just want to... There's a big thing that this leper is getting ready to do. And we may go into some more of this as we go on. But I want to just take a look at this. First off, in, in Leviticus 14, it says, In the day... This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. As far as we know or understand, this procedure was never done until Jesus walked on the earth other than Naaman and Naaman wouldn't have gone to the priest to be to be made holy leprosy as I said was a death sentence and yet Moses is being told when a leper gets healed this is what's going to happen this is what you're going to do this is something that's pretty bizarre to 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 them at this day okay why are we why are we getting any how do we expect any leper to ever be healed and now God's putting a whole set of rules <laughs> for these lepers. And it says that they shall go to the priest. And they're to call the priest because they're not allowed to go into the, into the camp. So they've got to call the priest to come out. And the priest has to examine him and say, okay, there's no leprosy. All right. And before this, it talked about how they evaluated leprosy. If somebody had the, the marks of leprosy, they were put away for seven days. If they grew, if they got bigger, then they were put away for another seven days. And if it continued to be to grow, they would say this person is a leper. If otherwise, they would say no, this was just a skin rash and it went it went away and no big deal, and they were brought back into the camp. But it says the priest will go out and she'll look him over, and if he sees that the plague is gone, he is to take two birds. And this is kind of an interesting offering that, that we're going to see. And another place is going to tell us that they're going to wring the neck of this one bird they're going to kill, which is going to give a blood ring for them to be looking at. They're going to wring the bird's blood out and use it for the offering. And he's to take and kill it over an earthen vessel of running water. So it's going to be a really diluted water that the blood is going to be dropped into for this offering. And they're going to take the cedar wood, which is going to represent the cross. We've talked about this a long time ago, that the wood is representing the cross that Jesus is going to die on. And the scarlet, or the blood, and the hyssop. Hyssop was a branch of a, of a plant that they would use, of a, and they used it for anointing a lot of times. They'd dip it in and they would shake it on it, whether it was oil or blood. And you'll see hyssop used all through, through the Old Testament. And they shall dip them in the, in the, dip them, the items that they had, and the living bird in the blood that the, of the bird that was killed over the running water. Here again is a picture. We have the hyssop, 
which is the way to sprinkle the blood. We have the cedar board, which is the representing of the cross, and the living bird that would be represent the, the leprous person or us as sinners being dipped into the blood of Christ and being covered by the blood of Christ. So this is a great picture of what's coming in, and because leprosy is a picture of sin in many times in the scriptures. So we're seeing the leper being cleansed, and being cleansed of our sin is a picture that's being brought out in this picture that he's bringing, bringing out with us. And they shall sprinkle on him that is to be cleansed of the leprosy seven times, and shall pronounce him clean, and then they shall let the living bird loose into the open field. Okay. This is very similar to on Yom Kippur, they had the uh, scapegoat. They would take... Right, it's, it's, it's got that double coverage. It's got this picture of us being covered in the blood and then being released, yes. So, but in the sin offering, they would take two goats and they would draw it by lot and one they would place their, their hand on symbolically, placing their sin on the, on the animal, on, on the two animals. One would be killed for the sacrifice and the other one would be led off into the wilderness representing that sin has been taken away and re, you know, released in a distant place. <laughs> and that goat was to just be let loose and be uh, supposedly never con- come back to the congregation again. And so we see this picture that Jesus is saying. He says, you have been cleansed of your leprosy. Now go follow and do what you're supposed to do. Go make these sacrifices. Go find your two birds and your hyssop and your, and your cedar and go to the priests. Kind of an interesting thing. The priests probably have never performed these ceremonies before. This is not something they've ever expected. Now they've been trained. You know, they would have been trained. They would have had the scriptures. But this is something they're not going to do. And we see it happening frequently when Jesus is alive. We have this event. We have ten lepers later on. We have lepers coming to Jesus frequently to be healed. And he keeps telling them, "Go to the priest. Go to the priest." Now, can you imagine, you're the priest, you've never, had, you've never done this ceremony for leprosy before in your lifetime. Your father hasn't, your grandfather hasn't. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you're getting bombarded with all these people, you know, bombarded, maybe not many, but you're, you're seeing people coming in <laughs> over a four-year period to celebrate this particular activity. It's going to have an impact on you as well. You may not have time to go out and follow this Jesus guy, but you're going to go, something's going on with this Jesus guy. These lepers are coming in and giving offerings. And we look at this. Jesus was meticulous about saying, go do what you're supposed to do. Follow the law. Go do the ceremonies you're supposed to do. Why? Because the ceremonies have value. They, they had the value of presenting to him. Then he, then he was to... Go cleanse and wash his clothes and, and totally shave off all of his hair. And he was tarry outside the camp for seven days. Why the seven days? Because that was the period of proving that you were not leprous, leprous in the first place. Because they're going, okay, you, you seem to be clean, but let's make sure you're going to be clean seven days from now. Uh, because that was the test when you were declared unclean. You would be put away for seven days, and then if you got worse, you were kicked out if you got better they just assumed it wasn't leprosy here they're just making sure they're making sure that you didn't just get a, a one-day healing and 
and uh, not going to get worse. And then we look at what they do at, on the eighth day. They bring in a meat offering. Now, if you remember when we studied the meat offering, that is the celebration with God offering. You would give your, your offering to God, and the priest would get his part, God would get his part, and you'd take the rest of it back and have a party. This guy has a reason to party. <laughs> he is now allowed to come back into the civilized world. I can guarantee he's going to have a party. He's going to invite anybody who dared be his friend during that period of leprosy. He may not have many friends, but he'd have lots of friends when he had a party. <laughs> and he's going to have an anointing. He's going to have the blood. And we noticed that the blood was placed on the right ear, right thumb, and right toe. Okay, we've talked about this. The right side is the side of approval. And we still, and I'll bring this up every time we talk about it, we still have that in our language. This is my right hand man, my right hand you know, worker, whatever. This is the person that I trust. If I need something done, this is the person I go to. I know they're going to get it done. They're going to do it the way I want. And people know that that's who you go talk to if that's who you want to get that person's attention. So your right ear, God is putting the blood on his hearing so that they will hear according to God. The right thumb, that their service will be covered with the blood. And their right toe, that their walk will be covered with the, with the blood of Christ. Then they put the oil. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. So it's the same thing. The Holy Spirit anoints our hearing so that we hear what God wants. He anoints our work and he anoints our walk. This is the picture that's being brought out on this. And this isn't the only time when we read the right, right ear, the right thumb, and the right toe. When the priests were anointed into service, Aaron had that same pattern of anointing. And all, the other, all of his sons had that same pattern of anointing. So he's saying, this person healed of leprosy is going to have an anointing. They're going to be covered with the blood of, of the offering. And they're going to have their service anointed by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is a picture not only of the leper coming in, but of the person cleansed of their sin from Jesus Christ coming in and having our hearing, our service, and our walk anointed, covered by the blood and anointed. These are great pictures, and this is why I love the Old Testament, because it's all pictures. And we want to remember, I keep bringing up, we want to read the Bible in context. You don't want to just read one or two verses. You read what's before it and what's after it. There's context immediate like that. Each book has a context that has to be understood. And when we started Matthew, we talked about how Matthew is a book that's written to Jews about Jesus being the King and the Messiah. So the context is going to be clearly, he's going to show that he's Messiah, that he has power, that he is a king, that he is a ruler. But even the Bible as a whole has a context. And what is the context of the whole Bible? Jesus. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. All the pictures, all the, all, the, all the directions are showing Jesus and what he's going to do. We need to keep these things in mind. That doesn't mean we spiritualize everything that we read, but we can also look and say, how does this show me what, what Jesus is like? How does this show me who Jesus is? And we see this over and over. When we went through the tabernacle, we showed you how each part of the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. And we see these sacrifices when we went through Leviticus, how each sacrifice is a picture of Jesus. And we see over and over and over again, Jesus. So, and this is what we're looking at. And then they put that oil, and after they put it on him, they took the rest of the oil that was in their hand, 
and they poured it over their head. Now, when, when, in our day, when we think of anointing, usually they mean they put a little drop of oil on your forehead or something, but in the Bible, when they talked about anointing, they were talking about a pretty good amount of oil was placed on your head. In this case, just a handful, but still, that was a, that was a pretty significant. But when David was anointed king, he took a horn of oil to anoint him. Uh, they may not mean much, but a horn of oil holds somewhere between five to ten gallons of oil. And they anointed David by pouring the entire thing over his head. Yeah, we're talking about an anointing. <laughs> when Aaron was anointed to be priest, it was one of the same things. They poured a large amount of oil, and there's a psalm that talks about the oil that pours down from Aaron's head, down his beard, down to his feet. Okay, so we look at that and say, God was not being stingy when he said anoint people. Why? Because the picture is the Holy Spirit coming upon us. And the Holy Spirit is supposed to totally envelop us in his anointing, not just be a spot on our forehead and, a, you know, here we're going to put a little spot on your thinking and that's as much Holy Spirit. No, we get a total drenching of the Holy Spirit, which is why in the Old Testament the picture of the oil coming over them was a drenching of oil. Now it sounds kind of gross actually to have that much olive oil poured over your head, but you know, at, least it's, at least it's an oil that's not too bad, <laughs> too bad for you. But then after they did this, these sacrifices, they would also offer a sin offering. This is an, a thanksgiving offering. The, he's, these people that came back healed from leprosy, it's pretty expensive to get healed from leprosy actually. You're going to have two birds and, a, and a two, two uh, sheep and a whole bunch of things, and you uh, really haven't had your flocks, you know, unless you had somebody taking care of your flocks or had parents or family who was willing to give you these sacrifices. This is an expensive thing to get healed. Not that they're going to be dissatisfied with it. They're going to be happy to do this. You know, they, they get to be with people now. But it's an expensive offering to them to get healed from leprosy. And... Jesus is saying, go do these things. And then it says after that, they were to produce a wave offering. And we've talked about wave offerings. That's when they would take, the priest would take the shoulder of the, of the offering and wave it side by side. And it's a fellowship offering that gets made. And he's to put it with, a, with fine flour. You know, we talked about this. This fine flour in their day, Flour was not extremely fine. Uh, it's only been in recent years that we've refined our flour down to no husks, no, no shells, nothing in it. Uh, even in the 100 years ago, flour was very heavy and dense. When you made a loaf of bread, it was not the light bread that we, that we have. A, a pound of bread would only be a couple of slices because of all the, the husks and shells and, and everything in it. Fine flour was very expensive, and they would crack each kernel of wheat. They would take the, the middle of it, then they would grind that up. There would be no husk in it, and it was pretty much used for offerings to the gods and, because it was just too expensive. It was too expensive to, to make food out of, and it, was, it had the consistency more of talc powder like, like our flour. Very fine, no grit in it. And Jesus and God says, you're to offer me the fine flour, the expensive flour, the very refined flour. 
And it shows a picture of how God wants his people to be brought together and ground into one fine group where you can't distinguish between each other. Why? Because we're the body of Christ. We are to be one. Now, unfortunately, the body of Christ doesn't usually act as one. <laughs> but the picture is that we're supposed to be one with every part different, but needing every part. How often do we look at the different parts in the body and say, well, gee, I don't know what you're doing. You're, you're worthless. And it's kind of interesting. You know, most people would look at their little toe, the, the, the fifth toe on their foot, and think, well, what good is the toe? Well, I'll tell you what, if you ever break the fifth metatarsal, the outside little toe, you find out what it does very quickly. It supports the entire weight of the body. And you look at it and go, why? Why, why would that one be so important? Well, God put it in there, and he didn't give it a lot of importance or, you know, or place in our body. How, many, how about all the different organs we have that we don't see? You know, how, which one of us would like to give up our heart? And nobody would because you, we need our heart, our liver, you know, all these parts of our body that we think you know, may not be that important. You know. But God says we are a body. We need every single person in the body doing what they're, what they're supposed to be doing. And the sad thing is there's so many Christians out there that want to just sit in the pew all the time and not, be, not take part of a, of a church, whatever that part might be. And I'm not the one to say what that part is, but God has all kinds of special gifts for each person. You know, we have people who are up front that are, that are doing the teaching and, and the singing and, and doing the, the high profiles. But there's lots of things that are done in a church that are behind the scenes that nobody hardly ever knows unless you're really intricately part of that church. In many churches, you never know who's cleaning the church, but when that person's gone for a while, you know that they're not there. And I've seen that happen more than once. You, that we look and say there's things going on that we're never aware of. How about the prayer warriors? And I'm talking about prayer, the true prayer warriors, not the people who claim to be prayer warriors and, you know, because they want to make it sound like they're doing something. But there are people out there that when they pray, things happen. And it's just amazing. There are people like that. There are people that are gifted just to give. Now, we're all expected to give to God, but there are some people who... Uh, would give you the shirt off their back and then everything they own besides it and never think twice about it. They have a special gift toward it. Evangelism. We're all called to go make, make disciples and evangelize. There are certain people, though, that are really gifted as evangelists. And they're amazing to watch. I've watched many of them in operation. They're amazing to watch because they'll evangelize everybody and not be obnoxious about it. If I tried to evangelize everybody, it would be a very obnoxious thing if I started, you know, just because that's what would be happening. But we look at this, and he says, they're to do this way of offering. And they're to get two young pigeons, and they're to do the same thing. They're to make the same offerings all over again. And it's a whole, this whole chapter is about the offering they have to make. So Jesus is telling them, go, <laughs> go make these offerings. Go do what the law demands. And what is Jesus going to be accused of? Telling people not to, buy, not to keep the laws. And all the Christians are going to be doing, being, being accused of the same thing. But every time they turn around, they're saying, go obey the laws. Go follow it. So I just wanted to bring out in this one verse how much is being said there that we don't catch as, as Gentile be, uh, uh, believers. There's a huge amount in this one little verse where he says, you know, go, go see the priest and offer the sacrifices that you're supposed to make. Verse six, uh, 5, 
And Jesus, and when Jesus was entering into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, saying, Lord, my servant lies at home sick and of palsy and grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto them, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one man, go, and he goes, and to another man, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he, he mar marveled and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, I have found no, uh, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel, I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so be it done unto you. And his servant was healed in that self-same hour. This is an interesting story. Jesus dealing with the people, dealing with Jewish people primarily because that's who he was called to do, uh, to talk to, and a centurion comes up. Again, we don't really fully understand what a deal this is. A centurion, a ruler of soldiers in the Roman army. <laughs> okay, Somewhere between 100 to 700 men under his command as a centurion. This is not just a low-level soldier who's been constricted, constricted to and forced into service. This is a man of considerable means. He probably bought his commission or raised up through the ranks. He's in charge. And yet, when his servant is sick, he goes to Jesus. And Jesus talks to him. And so anyway, this Centurion, and if we read the Luke account, the centurion himself didn't even come, but he sent, he sent people to Jesus, entreating him to heal his servant. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. The centurion then sent word to him, again from the Luke side, sent word to him. He goes, no, Jesus is coming to me? No, I don't need him to come to me. This is something that's amazing because we look at this. The Jews did not even have this much faith. They had to actually go see Jesus, and the centurion understands authority. And it's an amazing thing, and this is what Jesus marvels at. The centurion says, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Okay, so first off, he's recognizing yeah, you're, you're too important. You know, he's looking at it and saying, no, you'd be like bringing the governor or the king or the emperor. You're... I don't need you to come to my house because I don't deserve, I'm not worthy of a visit from you. I think it was a sense that he knew who he was and he knew that this man was a special, it could be spiritual, it could be just that he was a humble man and didn't feel that he was worth, that, it was, that he was worthy of having somebody of notoriety come to his house. This was something that states a lot about him. Yes, it states a lot about him. Part of it may be spiritual. Part of it may be that he's just so humble. He goes, no, I don't need this famous guy. He obviously had some righteousness in him because, number one, he's going to Jesus. There were Roman centurions and soldiers that were righteous and honorable. Cornelius is going to be one of them in the book of Acts where he wants to seek God for, for salvation. So he's, he's praying it, and God says, go get Peter. And Peter gets the vision to go so that he will actually go see Cornelius in the first place. 
So there are righteous people seeking after God just because God is leading them into righteousness. But this may be one of those men. He may be just, he's seeking after God. Uh, and he says, and he says, I'm not worried that you should come under my roof, but speak the word and my servant shall be healed. This man understands authority and power. He understands that Jesus has power. He's been hearing the reports of Jesus healing all these people. And he says, all you've got to do is speak it. This is something that most of the Jewish leaders did not understand. Power and authority. We need to really start understanding that too because Jesus has authority and he gave us authority and he says, all power is given unto you. Now that doesn't mean we use it in wild ways or anything. But if we use the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus according to his name, we have great power at our disposal. And again, we go back to that isn't just saying Jesus' name. It is literally the, all the authority and power that's behind his name. And the example that I heard a pastor love and I, and I speak and I love it is when a police officer says stop in the name of the law, He's not referring to a stack of papers sitting in the court in, in, the, in the desk in the police station. He's, re, he's calling on all the power and authority given to them by the governing authorities to issue instructions and power. That's what it means to use Jesus' name, to, to be praying in his name, to do something in his name, to to be baptized in his name. When it talks about his name, it is all the power and authority and reputation that is behind his name, which is why we have to be careful how we live because we are living with that name upon us and we're not to drag it through the mud through our misbehaviors and our misdeeds. And believe me, over the years, I've heard many people pray some really crazy prayers and they put it the very, in the name of Jesus, as if that's the magic words of the, to make the prayer happen. And what they asked for was not anything that was scriptural or godly. And they tacked on in the name of Jesus, figuring that they're praying in the name of Jesus. That does not mean anything. It's just words if it's not done right. When we are saved, we're saved in the name of Jesus. All the power and authority that represents his salvation is that name. When we're baptized... It's kind of interesting because there's a great big battle out there between a lot of people on how do you get baptized. You get baptized in the name of Jesus or the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there's verses that say both. Okay? The important part isn't Jesus, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is in the name of the power and authority of Jesus, who is the same power and authority of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we need to be conscious of the name. This centurion understood, it's your name. You have power. You have authority. You are a man under submission. He recognized the power and the man under submission. Because he was a man under submission, he saw that Jesus was a man under submission to God and had power because of that. And he said, he sent the servant according to, to Luke and said, just tell him, just say it. Just say that he's healed and he'll be healed. Jesus hadn't seen that kind of faith. And, you know, I don't know that I can remember too many places in the Old Testament where we see that kind of faith. God speaks and people do, but they pretty much had to see him to do. 
And I think about Elisha when, he's, when they're trying to arrest him and, and his servants all upset that the house is being surrounded by an army. And Elisha says, God, open the servant's eyes so that he can see that those that are with us are the, more than those that are against us. And a servant looks out the window and, and God's army encircles the army that has Elisha circled. We've got to keep in mind that God is powerful to the point of nothing happens to us unless he allows it. And I, and I have this feeling when we get to heaven, God's going to show us what our world was like and how much from the spiritual side of things. It would probably scare us to death if we saw the spiritual battles going on around us all the time. The near misses that we didn't get involved in because the spirit, you know, angels kept it away from us. The, the near misses that we know about <laughs> in our lifetimes. The, the things that God protected us for and gave us blessings for just because. And the war that's going on around us in the spiritual realm. And he says, I am a man under authority. I have soldiers under me. I say to them, go, and they go, and they, to another come, and he comes, and, I, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. You know, this is a man that understands what it means to be under authority. And he says, you're like this. All you've got to do is speak it. If you speak it, it's going to happen. <laughs> this is a knowledge and a faith that is hard to picture. And it comes from a Gentile <laughs> of all places, not from one of his own people. And Jesus is marvels at it. Here's a man that understands. He understands authority. He understands who I am. So yes, it's partially spiritual. It has to be partially spiritual because he's recognizing that Jesus is under authority. Because you only have authority if you are under authority. And if you try to get outside of your authority, you may look like you have authority for a while, but it's going to crumble and come down around you. And we see this all the time. People think they've got authority and they try to bluster and everything in the business world or the work world and you know, look at me, I'm all this important, you know, and, and you find out, you know, who is this guy? Well, he's nobody. <laughs> Here's somebody who didn't even have the teachings of the Bible in his, in his head to be, understand this. Because we see authority all through here. I mean, we see the pictures of it. Moses having the authority when he's challenged, you know, God gives Miriam leprosy, he swallowed, the ground swallows Kor, the Korites, uh, you know, all these different things where God shows authority. David, daring to cut even the hem off of Saul's garment, is struck because he has touched God's anointed. God several times says, touch not mine anointed. Why? Because of this is how serious God looks at authority. So the Jews should have understood Jesus' authority. And yet it's a Gentile that gets the credit of being the one recognizing it. But he understood it because he was a soldier. I think, I think military people have a greater understanding of authority and submission than most other types of employment because that is what they do. You know, the statement of you're to respect the, the uniform or the, the position, even if you don't like the person, is very, they learn the idea of being subject to authority whether they like it or not. And of course, it's enforced. If you don't, you, you end up in the brig or, or doing a lot of extra duty that you don't want to be doing. But this is something he understands authority. So I think he sees it from, the, from his side. He's used to a command given, being given. He's used to taking that command and giving it down to his people. And he expects to be obeyed. If they don't, he's going to punish them. So he sees these same traits in Jesus. Jesus, he sees or hears about the 
that demons are under his authority, that sickness is under his authority, that all these things are under the authority of God, of Christ. And he goes, okay, this is a man who is submitted to the deity. Now, he may have been attracted to Judaism already, but he understands authority and, and submission. And Jesus' answer is so wonderful. Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great a faith not in Israel. Because this man is expressing faith. You have authority. I understand you have authority. You don't even have to come near my house. You could be, you know, however many miles away he was, but he's basically saying, you could be on the other side of the world for all I care. If you say it, it's going to happen. He understood. He understood, and he had the faith to just say, do it. How many times do we not have that kind of faith? We read the word of God, and we do not walk according to what God says because we don't truly trust him. And it really is that's what we're doing. We're saying, God, I really don't trust you. God says, do something, and we go, well, God, I just don't know if it'll work, so I'm not going to step out. Mentioned last night, I read the book about George Mueller and how he learned to be dependent upon God for everything. He was quite a, quite a man. He, he started three missions with no money in his pocket. One was an orphanage, one was a school for, for kids, and another one was supporting missionaries. He had no money. <laughs> and he goes, I'm going to do these things because he felt God wanted him to. And he'd pray and God would supply everything that he needed. And he never told people that he needed money, he just prayed. And God provided. Do we have that kind of faith saying, God, you're going to provide for whatever I need? Do we have the faith that says, God, you've said to do this, so I'm going to go do it, even when everything looks like it's not going to work? Now, I'm not saying that we go on and get presumptuous and just do dumb things because we think we should and God will bless it. No. But if God has put it on your heart to do something and you've read something and you know that he's telling you to do something, You've got to act on what he says to do because that's a step of faith. Even if it makes no sense, even if it sounds like it's something crazy to do, if, God's, if you know that God's telling you to do it, you go out and do it. When I moved to Kingman, I argued with God for a long time because I did not want to come to Kingman because I was a computer programmer and I knew there was no jobs for computer programmers in Kingman, at least not in the language I programmed in. But I knew God wanted me out here. And you know, financially, it's been the best decision I ever made. Because everything has fallen into place by my following God. To do what made no sense at all from the world's point of view. If I had sat down and made a pro-con list, Kingman would have lost. <laughs> it would have been no question in my mind, Kingman would have lost. There was no, the only good thing on Kingman was family was here. <laughs> and that had a high priority, but it, you know, on a pro-con list, it would have been the only plus on that side because it, was, it made no sense to come here. Yet I knew God wanted me here. And that was enough to put all the other, other things aside. How many times do we do that? Do we sit down and we say, God, you're telling me to do this, but I just don't see how it works, and then we walk the other way. I've done those decisions myself. I've done them many times in my lifetime as well and ended up suffering for making the wrong decisions. But God is saying, when he's telling us what to do, we need to step out. We need to step out and do what he's telling us to do. Sometimes it may mean staying where we don't think we should be staying because it makes no sense. But God is saying, I want you to grow where you're at. 
too many times, especially as human beings, we run from our problems. The only problem is we just take our problems with us to wherever we go next. It always works out that way. You, you think you're leaving your problems behind and they just seem to be right there because things aren't the problems, it's us that are the problems. <laughs> we are our own problem most of the time and we will recreate our problems over and over. Uh, I've seen this happen with pastors. They have a hard time in their church. So they say, okay, well, this church obviously isn't God's call for me, and they go to another church. And they end up bringing, having the same things happening, and then they go to another church and have the same things happening. If they're really smart, they'll learn and say, well, it must be me. I need to change. Usually they quit. Instead of saying, I'm the problem. I saw this in the business world with managers who would transfer from store to store to store and end up with the same problems everywhere they went. And hopefully they would finally get a, a supervisor who would say, hold it, you need to change. But that didn't always happen. We tend to run away from our problems. And God's saying, fix, let me fix your problems. Let me help change you to fix your problems. Because we need to grow. Now sometimes that may mean moving someplace else, but that's after God has revealed what our problems is and fit, started us on those problems. I've seen many people church hop. They, you know, they, they bring their problems with them to a church they, and then when things start getting the same way as their previous church, they'll go to another church and then when things start getting hot at that church because they're bringing their problems, they'll jump to another church or they hear something they don't want to hear and they just keep bouncing around churches and they make the circuit around all the, all the churches. They'll stay there for anywhere from three years to five years and then they're gone because they're not willing to face up to what needs to be done. We need to look at ourselves and say, God, what is it you want me to change? Change me. And we want him to be the one that changes us. Jesus goes on and says in verse 11, And I say to you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit, sit, sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's looking at the centurion and saying, Many are going to come from all around the world speaking basically prophetically of us as, as Gentile believers. They're going to come and they're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, be part of God's chosen people. But the children of them are going to be cast out. Why? Because they did not accept God. And many, many Jews are lost and headed to hell. Now, they will think that they are going to be okay because they are Jews. And you'll hear this. You talk to enough Jews, and if they're either non-religious and really don't care, they don't believe in heaven or hell, or they believe that if there's a heaven, they're going to go there just because they're Jews and, and chosen by God. And you'll hear both extremes from them. And here, Paul's going to say it many times in the epistles. Jesus is even saying it. Many of the children of the kingdom are going to go to hell they're going to go to outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, a description of hell. And then Jesus said unto the centurion, or actually his servants, Go your way, you have believed, so shall it be done. And his servant was healed in that same hour. And it says in, the, in Luke, it talks about how he goes, When did Jesus say this? And he found out exactly when it was. And the moment Jesus said it was when his servant was healed the power of God, of the authority of God. God 
wants to do things for us, but he will only do it for us when we recognize his authority. His authority, he shows his authority twice now in this chapter, once over leprosy and other diseases. Just before that, he showed it over the demons, and now he's showing it over sickness, even from a distance away. He doesn't have to touch the person. All he's got to do is pray for them. And most of the people that Jesus was dealing with, they, they had to touch him. They, they, he had to touch them or they weren't going to get healed. And this centurion says, no, you just had the power. You speak and it'll happen. He had absolute assurance that because Jesus was a man under authority, like him, he goes, you can just say it and it'll happen. I know it will. Why? Because he knew his authority. He understood authority. We need to really understand God's authority because he's given us authority. We don't tap into a, a, a small portion of what God allows us to do, usually because we want to use it greedily upon ourselves and not for the glory of God. If we were to really desire to see God glorified and lifted up, we could have great power being displayed in healing, in, in salvations, in power of God, just by really wanting to lift him up. But too often as human beings, we get, you know, we want to see some glory for ourselves. We want, to, we want to show off what can I do. Look at the power I have at my fingertips. Not let Jesus be lifted up. Because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And that includes all the power that goes along behind that statement. But with, uh, with all that authority and understanding of authority will come great suffering and pain because you do not get that kind of position without going through the pain and the suffering with Jesus. We, when you read the biographies of these guys and you watch what they went through to get to where they got, <laughs> you know, we look at it and we go, wow, look, you know, George Mueller, look, at, look how powerful he was, you know, was in his prayers and how much, how much he got done and how much he was spending. In the 1800s, he, you know, his orphanage was costing him 200 pounds a month. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us in our day, but that is a huge amount of money in that day. And that was only one of the missions that God put him in charge of. But he started out praying just for a room to live in when he's going to school and watching God provide little things. And he grew to where he trusted God enough to be able to ask for big things. But even those big things didn't come easy because usually, as God will on almost every occasion, he provides at the last possible moment just to see if you're going to panic and try to do it on your own. And it's amazing. When you're trying to live by faith, to watch God work, and it's always, okay, God, the bill is due tomorrow. Where's the money? and a job will come up or the check will come in the mail or somebody will give you a gift. It's always at the last moment because God is saying, are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust me or are you going to panic? When I was going through my period with where I got the job at the prison, you know, I would pay all the bills I could and I would actually take the bills and go, God, okay, God, here's your bills. <laughs> you know, and I would wait for the jobs to come in or the money to come in, whichever way he wanted to bless it. But almost always it was the day before the bill had to be paid, I'd get an extra job that, that the, the day or two before to make the money for it. Or a check would come in the day that it was, had to be paid. And, and even when I say this, you all don't realize that I could have gone out 
at any time and gotten a job for 40, 50, 60,000 a year with my restaurant career. And that was always dangling in front of me. Every time I opened up a newspaper and looked at the Hope Wanted odds, there would be this great, you know, here would be a great big for this restaurant or that restaurant to say, okay, so always in the back of my mind was I could get rid of all my money problems tomorrow. But you know, it wasn't the way it was going to be and I knew it wasn't the way it was going to be because if I took a restaurant job, the pastor's job disappeared. Because I could guarantee I couldn't do both. I guarantee if I was a restaurant manager, every Sunday morning somebody would be sick or called out or there would be some emergency at the restaurant. I knew that. I'm going, God, I need you to pay these bills because I don't want to do this other. And he always paid them. Now, I had to work hard sometimes to get the money to pay them, but he always provided. How much faith do we have in God? Are we willing to step out and say, God, I'm going to answer whatever you have for me to do, no matter how hard it seems. Because the test isn't that it is, are we going to persevere even when it makes, even when there's an easy out? And oftentimes that's a problem because we look at it from the human side of things and saying, well, all I got to do is this and it's all taken care of. All right, fine, you do that, but what are you sacrificing in your service for God? There's always going to be a sacrifice on the other side. When you make your decision by the sight, you're losing something in the spiritual world. Doesn't necessarily mean the sight is wrong, but make sure that that's what God's telling you to do because normally sight is not the answer. We want to be very careful to trust God in all that we do. Trust in the Lord in, in all your ways and acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Now, we got to look at trusting God in everything that we do. Always trust him. And most of the time... We're not to lean onto our own understanding because our own understanding will get us in trouble and it's very rarely God's way of doing things. Abraham was called out of Ur of Chaldees at a time when you didn't leave your family <laughs> to wander around in the middle of the, the promised land amongst all those heathens out there that were polytheists. And he was a monotheist, you know, walking around worshiping the one true God in a land that God said, this is going to be yours. <laughs> And what did he own when he died? One field with a cave on it. it. Was all that he owned when God said, "All of the everywhere your foot is touched is yours." And he ends up owning one small piece of property. And his son owns one small piece of property. And his grandson owns one small piece of property. <laughs> the same one is that his grandpa owned. When they came back into the promised land, the only thing they owned when they first stepped in was that one small piece of property. And at that time, nobody was recognizing the deed because it, was four, it had been bought 400 years before. We see God's plan. God's plan sometimes is a long-term plan. He sees things as if they're finished before they start. And oftentimes, it takes a long time for us to get ready to be what he wants us to be. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you've done for us and how much you care for us and love us. We ask that you help us to see what your plan is for us. Lord, help us to understand and to follow you no matter what it is you've asked us to do. Give us the strength in, to do it and the desires to do it and to be under authority and follow you in your son's name. Amen.